All right. We are back. Elizabeth still looks like a biker, but I do not. I took biker's, my jacket off. Biker's good. Harleys are good. Yeah, even though it's a little chilly in here. <laughs> so in this uh, little episode, we're going to hop into a little more specifics about creditor rights, creditor protection, and some of the change that Elizabeth has been fundamental throughout her career in, in trying to implement. Um, on one side, the last podcast, we kind of talked about her career, a little bit about her background, um, some of the things she's been doing. Um, a lot of that's on her website. Well, it's on her CV, which is on the website. You can go check it out. She's She's been in, geez, I mean, a billion articles. I can't even count them all. Yeah. And you've helped write or draft, I should say, parts of the IRC, the Internal Revenue Code. Wrote a textbook. But one of the things that we wanted to talk about specifically on this one was um, the idea of creditor rights. And uh, specifically in the context of charging order protections for LLCs and LPs and what a charging order is and why it's unique as a creditor remedy and why it's something that we prefer from the asset protection side. So why don't you uh, go ahead and establish the idea of what creditor rights are, what they mean and how are they limited and how are they um, different in the American jurisdiction? Good. Okay. Fantastic. So, um, when you are, you know, if you think about um, kind of the intersection of uh, capital and debt, right? At that juncture, the question is, who who's who has rights to what, right? So, I have money. I invest it in a business. Um, I, in some respects, am kind of a creditor. Like, you know, what rights do I get in that business? Um, versus what if I borrow money? What if I borrow money from you? What rights do uh, do you have to get that money back? So the big picture is rights vis-a-vis, I, you know, I've got the money, you owe the money, and what rights do you have, right? right? So <clears throat> to give, because I always like to start, I always like history, so let's go back to, you know, at the very beginning, um, the, our legal system is based on the English common law, and the English common law was oral primarily until Queen Elizabeth, who, and of course, I love the story. I mean, goodness gracious, Elizabeth was a woman. She wasn't, you know, she was educated. Um, she was a pretty amazing person, even though uh, you could argue that. The original Miss Independent. Exactly. Well, the, the horrible histories <laughs> has a lot to say about poor <laughs> Queen Elizabeth. But, um, <clears throat> but one of the things she did was she codified the oral law, which was an incredibly important thing to do. So um, those, it was 16th century between, you know, 1540 to 1570, and they were called the Statutes of Elizabeth. Mm. So up to that point, it was just, it was just oral law and it was just common law, but it wasn't codified in any was it written way. down? Right. Yeah. yeah, it wasn't written down. And, it, and if you think about it, prior to Elizabeth too, you know, um, uh, the Bible was in Latin. Ordinary people didn't understand it. Right. You know, the uh, the legal system was completely oral. So nobody had in, there weren't any checks and balances. You know, that she was she in many respects. I align myself. I, I you know I feel like she and I have a lot of similar ideas and views. I want things besides to be clear. I know really. Yeah. And and besides the fact that she like perhaps killed people, which yeah. I hope is not part of my tradition. But, you know. And she was shorter in stature as well. Was she shorter? Yeah. 
than me? How is that possible? She's like 4'10". She's <laughs> tiny. Really? <Yes. laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay, well. So was Victoria. I had no idea about that. Um, so she codified the the in the the laws which made it so much easier than for people to know mm -hmm. you know not you can't pull the wool over my eyes like you know this is really what it is one of those statutes um was called the fraudulent transfer statute and it codified the english view of these rights these creditor rights and the idea was that um, and and you think about it it's an agricultural environment it's not really as sophisticated as today right. but there were maritime activities back then, and so there, you know, some of this grew up too out of admiralty and maritime, you know, trade and finance. And the question is, if I loan you money, right, and you don't pay me, what are my rights, right? And so let's start with a cow. So I know you have a cow, so I loan you money, and I figure. I'll get the cow, right? You have some assets. If you don't pay me back, I have a right to get the cow. But what what if you take that cow and you go hide it in your neighbor's barn? Oh, I don't have that cow anymore, right? What were my rights as a creditor? Well, the fraudulent transfer statute said that if I moved that cow purposely, right, with an intent to defraud you, it's clear. That's avoidable transaction, meaning the neighbor, I have to go and tell the neighbor, sorry, I have to get the cow back. Mm -hmm. That transfer was ineffective because I actually owe the cow to this creditor, mm -hmm. right? So that's really clear. That was an existing creditor and I did it intentionally. If on the other hand, I just had to sell the cow because I didn't, I needed the money and it wasn't an intentional act to defraud the creditor, then the creditor had rights to the cash that I received and, um, but if the cash was spent on living, my creditor might might be completely unsecured, mm -hmm. right? So th that's kind of the big picture. I'm a creditor. What do I have the rights to get? Um, the concepts are existing creditors versus future creditors and intentional versus unintentional transfers. Mm -hmm. So that's the big picture. So fast forward to, to our country. We adopted in really whole cloth primarily except in states like Louisiana the English common law mm -hmm. so we just bloop you know globbed it onto our legal system and in the fraudulent transfer uh, world it's even more interesting because we just called it the fraudulent transfer statute um, and adopted it you know in many respects whole cloth exactly the way it was in 1577. Um, we've and 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 what does that what does that look like and mean? What it means is there's still a lot of gray area. You're good. Keep going. Um, because while there are still the same concepts, you know, are you an existing creditor? Are you a future creditor? And if I'm the Between debtor, the why that makes a that it makes a distinction in terms of who can collect first and who can. Why, is the, why does that distinction matter between existing and future? So existing creditors uh, are people you know you owe. Mm. Like, I know I owe you money. Mm -hmm. So it's much more intentional right. if I transfer assets, leaving me without the ability to pay you. Right. That's just, that's not cool. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So a very practical example of what she's talking about with the, 
and she mentioned with the cow. In today's context, it would be if you had a, an account with a million dollars somewhere and you had a creditor that you owed a million dollars, but they didn't know about that account and you took that money and transferred it somewhere else and hid it from them or right. tried to move it overseas or something like that, that's a fraudulent transfer. Absolutely. Yeah. It's done with intent to defraud that creditor. There's a uh, kind of staying with that concept of an existing creditor. Um, the rules have developed and and the concept existed in the statute of Elizabeth that as long as you are solvent after a transfer, you are uh, it is not a fraudulent transfer. And what does that mean? That means I take all of my assets, all of my liabilities, including my contingent liabilities. Right. Contingent liabilities are things you could owe. Th exactly, things like alimony, child mm -hmm. support. Have I guaranteed a debt? Those are contingent liabilities. So uh, you take assets less all of the existing liabilities and contingent ones, and then what's left over is your the amount that you can transfer, which wouldn't be fraudulent vis-a-vis -vis an existing creditor. Right. So right? if you're Elon Musk and you owe somebody $30,000, even if he moves, he takes $30,000 from some account and moves it somewhere, it's not going to matter because he has plenty of solvency to be able to deal with that debt. So exactly. that's what she's referring to is like you can go through and look at, okay, is it, is it actually a transfer that's going to affect your ability to pay? And that's a determination the court can make. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Now, the general rule is if I'm making a transfer, Kev, to, um, you know, I have no creditors today at all. Congrats. I know. Isn't that, isn't that fantastic? Shout out to Dave, Dave Ramsey. Ramsey. Dave Ramsey <laughs> Shout out to Dave Ramsey. But let's assume that you know I have no creditors today, not mm -hmm. contingent creditors, whatever, and I make a transfer. Let's say it's kind of huge. It's you know it's a million dollars. I move a million dollars out of uh, my hands into something that's exempt, and we do need to talk about what that would look like. But just. In an easy example, let's say that I buy a house for a million dollars and it's my homestead, right? Mm -hmm. And it turns out that later somebody sues me and gets a judgment and they want to argue that that was a fraudulent transfer. I should have known mm -hmm. that they were going to pop up. Let's say I'm a lawyer and it's a client and I should have known and I don't have the insurance to cover it. Well, the court will probably say, well, A, it's homestead. So it's exempt from the claims of creditors. Mm -hmm. And B, even if it wasn't Homestead, um, I had no reason to expect that there would be that creditor. Therefore, even though there are no assets to pay the claim, um, they were a future creditor at the time I made the transfer. Right. Therefore, public policy says they don't have a right to get to my assets. So existing creditor is something you know you owe somebody money. Future creditor is you didn't even see it coming. And right. therefore, the, the case for a fraudulent transfer is a lot weaker. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And if you think about it, again, from a public policy standpoint, that really makes sense. Yeah. Who are we trying to protect? Mm -hmm. We want to protect people who have a reasonable expectation of getting their money back. Um, what's interesting, when you start talking about the specifics of asset protection and legislation, et cetera, Banks and other people who lend money in the you know secured credit world, they're really comfortable with that concept. Mm -hmm. They understand 
um, that they have to look at a balance sheet and they'll make a decision about whether they think you have enough solvency to loan against. And they'll, they'll make that decision based on the numbers. And if later those numbers don't exist, they understand it. They accept it. Banks get it, right? Mm -hmm. Which is why they have you update your balance sheet and, you know, all those things. This is why when you go get a mortgage, they check everything. Right. Mm -hmm. What do you own? Do you have any juicy IRAs we can get a hold of? Do you have a firstborn child? Well, not not always. Not exactly. But but the point is the bank wants personal security. And just to establish that concept, security means they're able to go get something if if you don't pay back. Right. Just look at the cow example. Exactly. Uh, And unsecured means... You don't, they don't have any recourse. They're just trusting you. Right, right, exactly. So if you think about the concept of secured versus unsecured, um, secured is when you buy a house and they get that lien right. on your house. Right. They're secured creditors. Unsecured creditors are, let's say you have a line of credit, and it's not an equity line of credit. You just have a line of credit. Or you have a credit card. That's an unsecured debt, right? Right. Um, so when you're, if we take the public policy argument a little bit further, secured creditors are first in line, right? Um, because they've established a lien based on statute um, and consent. Mm-hmm. I've consented to that lien, mm-hmm. right? And so I'm going to be personally responsible, and everyone knows that if I default, we know the rights and obligations of the creditor and the debtor. It's very clear. Where you have a problem, and one of the things that's happened in our, our system when, when we're looking at um, you know, these issues, our legal system uh, has developed in such a way that um, there, and this is something that I don't know that we're ready to talk about right this second, but it encourages litigation. So when you the, when you start thinking about some of the things we're getting ready to talk about the what a charging order is and how it works, et cetera, the the challenge is that plaintiffs lawyers in our country can take a contingent fee, mm-hmm. and so they're encouraged to sue people. Now mm-hmm. I'm not saying all plaintiffs lawyers are bad; they serve an amazing purpose. They take care of you know and and. Our system that is... Shout out to all my buddies in California that are plaintiff's lawyers. Exactly. Yeah. The good guys. They're, the few good ones. The few good ones. But, but and, and when we start to really talk about that, we will, again, be talking about the difference between our country and other westernized countries. Um, the purpose of allowing a contingent fee, which most countries don't allow, is to, uh, to give... Um, the ability for people who don't have money, people uh, with no means, mm-hmm. to have access to the court system. So it was an amazingly important thing to include. But the challenge is now that it's a whole business model. Yeah. So our our public policy actually, um, it, it's interesting because we favor, and this is historical, we favor contractual arrangements whereby yeah. an individual with full knowledge and understanding, gives a lien to a creditor Mm -hmm. and then accepts the consequences of that lien if they don't fulfill their part of the bargain. That's what we prefer. But there's this whole other group of creditors driven by a judicial system that has built into it currently um, a a desire or a, a process that will 
encourage uh, individuals to bring lawsuits because if they can get, if a plaintiff's lawyer can find a, gr a class of people who look vulnerable and uh, and then go to them and market their services and say, you know, I'll take 50% of what I get for you, just sign your name, um, then they go get the money and they get 50% of the proceeds in a class action suit. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, it, it's created an environment where then they become judgment creditors and they don't get the same which has, protection uh, as a secured creditor. Yes, which has a frigid effect on lending because the more litigation that's out there, the less people are going to be interested in starting businesses and doing everything else. So, um, yeah, so in um, – so, did you finish what you are going to say? No, so, so going – so taking that background, now mm -hmm. the question is – you have a secured creditor and you have an unsecured creditor, right? Secured, it's very easy. You just, you have a lien, you know, you collect on it. And while there are, if there's competing interests in secured creditors, which there can be, mm -hmm. um, you may have to work that out. But generally, that's pretty clear. Right. Now what we're talking about are unsecured creditors, which are primarily um, judgment debtors. Right. They can be spouses individuals who don't have a secured interest in a particular asset. Now the question is, what happens? What happens when you get a judgment? So the answer is, step one, lawsuit. Step two, judgment. Step three, discovery, post-judgment discovery. Step four, now collection. Mm -hmm. So how does collection happen? And this is so important because a lot of people think that once you get a judgment, that's it. Oh, the court gave me this much. The court did this much. I mean, what's happening we see right now with the Alex Jones lawsuit, it's like you can give a judgment for a billion dollars. Right. If he doesn't have it, it doesn't matter. It, right. You can, you can say whatever you want, and that's kind of a different thing because it's all punitive and very right. performative. And it's, uh, But what Elizabeth's talking about is like there's a process of collections where you have to find out what somebody has and go get it. Right. And that's not a very easy process. It could involve using the police or, and the court has some authority that they can use. But um, that's a whole process in and of itself. Just because you got a judgment, it doesn't mean that you're just going to get that money in a pile of cash somewhere immediately. Right. There's this whole process you have to go through. So anyway, so now so collections. So so now we're thinking about collections. Right. Um, so the question is, what can you collect? So the easy thing is, uh, easy thing to do, you take that judgment, right, and you file it in uh, the counties where there's real estate. Now, if there's homestead, the owner of that homestead will win. You, you cannot force that house to be sold. Um, and again, some states have more protection than others, and we, we, we can talk about that, but this is just the general concept. Mm -hmm. Homestead, they can file, but they're not going to get anything right. because w once they file, now they are asking the court to force a sale of the asset and give the proceeds to the creditor, right? If, however, you have other real estate, investment real estate, real estate that isn't protected by Homestead, then they, they file the lien and they ask the court to judicially foreclose on that lien, sell it on the courthouse steps and give the creditor the money. So that's one collection thing to do. Another is garnishment of bank accounts. They'll go and they'll locate all of your bank accounts and they'll go to the bank and say, I have this judgment 
bank, you need to turn over these assets in satisfaction of the judgment. You can see that that's, uh, the banks are going to be concerned because right. how is how are they going to coordinate? Right. And um, and because they have an obligation to their account holder, there is litigation that ensues. Right. It doesn't just happen automatically. Um, now, this is why what happened in Canada recently was such a big deal because they had a government and banks unilaterally just taking those funds with very little investigation of what was actually going on right so yeah you're right there's like yeah that's why typically there's a litigation process where it's like the bank's like no we're not just going to give you something because you're a creditor we actually have to see some proof right but when you have the you know a governmental entity then again they will sidestep those you know those protections um and and going back to our earlier constitutional discussions that's one of the problems with having govern, centralized government um, because they can overreach. Mm-hmm. So um, again, everything is cost benefit. We need to protect, we have to have protections uh, built into the system. And, and you know, the, what happens so often is people get afraid and then they you know, say, oh yeah, okay, it's fine, it's fine. Give up, give up all those protections. Yeah, that's right. What they were doing was really bad, take their money without realizing the precedent that that sets, you, you know? I know, it's you next, exactly. Yeah. What is that old saying? Well, anyway, you know, it was fine when it was <laughs> the person down the street and then it was your neighbor, but then they come for you, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so, so that's kind of generally what you're looking at when you're looking at entity structures or trusts. Now it's a different matrix. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you have business entities, you have different types of entities and different remedies. And maybe it's a good time to, to tell the audience when you're thinking about what a creditor can get, you don't just look at the statute, the governing statute about an entity structure, because that's just how does the entity work, who has right. rights, et cetera. What you also have to look at is something called the Civil Practice and Remedies Codes, because those are where the courts get their you know authority to establish a remedy for a creditor. Mm-hmm. So, um, which varies by state. It's, it's more of a local. It, it does. Right. It, it varies by state, but with regard to the, the certain types of creditor remedies that we're going to talk about, they're pretty. It's pretty uniform. Mm-hmm. Um, so before we talk about that, it's really important for everybody to understand what an entity is and what it looks like and, and the various types of entities and how it differs from a trust, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, because when we are thinking about a charge, uh, uh, you know, what rights a creditor has to your interest in an entity, you have to understand what that entity looks like. So, um, so let's, I think, let's talk about that because all limited liability entities limit the liability of the owners from business liability, right? right. So whether it's a, a C corp, well, and and whether it's a cor- a, a per se corp, I'm going to call it a per se corporation. Whether it is on the other end of the spectrum, a general partnership or joint venture, and in between, a limited partnership or a limited liability company, all of those entities will protect the owners from business liability as long as the corporate formalities are followed. It's treated like an actual corporation or company, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So that's consistent, mm-hmm. right? 
What isn't consistent is um, the rights that a third-party creditor would have to a debtor's interest in those entities. So, uh, and here's why. If I have a corporation, a corporation is an avatar. You can make it look like anything you want. You can ha have glasses, dark hair, blonde hair. It could be short, fat. Um, you know, it could have, you know, blue lips, pink lips, whatever you want it to look like. So in the corporate world, that means what's the governing law, how are shares transferred, what, you know, you, you can. That was a metaphor, if you guys missed it. Yeah. You can do anything you want with this avatar. Mm -hmm. What I own, then, is a share in an avatar, mm -hmm. and um, that share in that avatar is easily transferable because it's not going to affect what happens to the other shareholders because they still own part of the avatar. Now there's just another shareholder. So it's very, very easy for a court to say, okay, Mr. Debtor, turn over your shares to the creditor, and it's not going to disturb any of the other owners. So the remedy against a corporation is a turnover order. Right. Okay, so that's, that's pretty easy. On the other end of the spectrum is a general partnership. You and I decide that we are going to invest in a pig farm because, you know, pigs are cute and um, you know, we don't want to do it alone. We want to have someone else to muck about in the mud with us. So we have a pig farm. As opposed to the avatar, which is we own a share in a thing, mm -hmm. if we are joint venturers and, a general, and general partners in a pig farm, each of us owns an undivided interest in every one of those little pigs, mm -hmm. the little curly tail, the spotted little body, and the little pink snout. Each of us has an undivided. You can't divide it. You can't cut that pig into pieces. So if, Kev, you go and, you know, do something risky, which you never would do, but let's say you did, um, and you had a creditor. Gambling debt. Gambling debt, exactly. Um, who showed up and said, okay, court, I want Kevin's interest in this venture. If the, if the court allowed them to collect, it would harm me. Because you and I, and now the creditor and I, have an undivided interest in each of those pigs, and that's not fair to me, right? If you're trying to run a pig farm, if you're trying to run, a stranger comes in that doesn't know what he's doing. Well, it's not even that because he doesn't want to run the pig farm. Right. He wants half of each pig. Right. Right. So, and you can't really divide up the pigs. You can't. He'll want all of the really good pigs, mm -hmm. and he'll want to leave me with the pigs, <laughs> the real pigs, <laughs> right? So. Right. Um, so that's really the problem. He, he's not interested in running the pig farm. He wants your interest in each of those pigs. So what the court came up with historically was, because that's called an aggregate ownership regime as opposed to an entity regime, which is a corp. The court said, yeah, that's not fair. That's not fair to your other joint ventures. So ruin a small business. I mean, you could totally destroy the other partner who's innocent and has no... Right. Nothing to do with your gambling debts, but all of a sudden they can't even run their pig farm anymore because this creditor came in and took everything. Exactly. Right. So that's exactly. What you mean by third party creditor. It's somebody that's outside of that partnership relationship that's coming in and trying to steal the value from the partnership. Exactly. Exactly. So the court, the civil practice and remedies codes were developed mm -hmm. uh, in such a way as to say, okay, you can have a charging order only. In other words, no turnover. Mm -hmm. of the undivided interest in the pig farm. Instead, 
you get an order that sits there, and every time the pig farm pays money, it goes half to the individual owner who's not the debtor and half to the creditor until the creditor's rights are satisfied. Right. right? That's a charging order. Right. So, and a charging order is better from the perspective of the partnership because well, it's not very attractive from the perspective of the creditor because you can't control when those distributions right. are even made. Exactly. Which, um, which led many people to suggest that you need to form, if we're thinking about asset protection, we want to form entities that aren't attractive to creditors, mm -hmm. kind of the you know, poison pill idea. So, um, so, so let's leave that on the table for a second. Here's a charging order with regard to a general partnership. In the middle, you have now limited partnerships, which developed after general partnerships. Um, the idea that you'll have some people who will be generally liable, and that's the general partner, right. and that other people who are uh, limited partners and have limited liability, um, which just a little cute historical point of fact, um, it was really the Catholic or Anglican Church that drove a lot of that because they wanted they had all this capital that they wanted to oh, invest. Really? Yeah, if you look at it historically, oh we could probably do a whole thing on that. Um, so the church wanted all the capital without any of the risk. Basically. Exactly. So they wanted to be a limited partner or anything. Exactly. And, yeah, the, can't sue God, can't and the individuals who um, agreed to that to be generally liable, they were fine with it because they just needed a way right. to get infusions of capital. And the right. church back in the you know 14th, 15th, 16th century was, um, you know, who had all the money. Right. But in any event, limited partnerships came later, and they too were aggregate ownership regimes in that everyone owned an undivided interest. The difference was just liability. General partner would be generally liable for the business debts. Limited partners weren't. Mm -hmm. And then limited liability companies were developed much, much later in the 80s. And limited liability companies, interestingly, were developed by oil companies because they wanted we, they wanted something that looked like a partnership for certain purposes and looked like a corporation for other purposes. Right. So the question then was, you know, what applies because the limited liability company statutes were based on the partnership statutes, they then were put in the aggregate ownership regime bucket, mm -hmm. right? Now, what's so charging orders applied to all of those general partnerships, limited partnerships, and LLCs. But what's interesting is two things. First of all, across the board, the statutes changed to say that those aggregate ownership regimes were actually entities. And nobody ever really talks about that because if they are entities, then a charging order shouldn't apply, mm -hmm. right? If there's protections for those other partners, then the charging order shouldn't apply. But something kind of unique happened in this uh, world. And that is uh, that I was working, back when I was a young lawyer, um, 80s, early 90s, the, uh, all of the lawyers just walked around chanting a mantra. You know, a charging order is the exclusive remedy against a partnership, and then they would bow and then uh, hit the dong, uh, or literally. the gong, it literally. Was a, it was a religious cult. It, it was a religious cult. And uh, as a young lawyer, I was hearing this from the planning bar, but I had worked for a really amazing divorce lawyer in Houston. I clerked uh, for him 
uh, when I was in law school. And I was watching him. He didn't say a charging order was the exclusive remedy in a divorce. They just busted up those partnerships, mm -hmm. you know. And I started wondering how were they doing it. And I went and I looked. Oh, it makes perfect sense. A charging order creates a lien on the partnership interest. Mm -hmm. And if you can show bad faith, then a court will allow you to foreclose on that lien and bust up the partnership. So a charging order was not the exclusive remedy against a partnership. So I wrote an article. Do you know what day, year what that was? It was in I was the- I trying to figure out if you're talking about this one. Um, well, uh, that was when it was included in that book. But I think it was originally published in 98. Mm. Um, and you would have thought that I said that the world was flat Nothing against flat earthers, but 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 <laughs> you would have thought that I was saying that the world was flat. I can't even explain to you. It was kind of the beginning of the internet. We had people, uh, you know, calling, sending us emails, and in fact, I gave a speech. People were angry with you about it. They were angry because if you think about it, there are these sacred cows. Yep. And by saying it wasn't an exclusive remedy, basically what mm -hmm. I was saying was, you guys. Have, screwed up. You've screwed up, yeah. right? And the only reason I was looking at it was I wanted to know substantively what was correct. Is that the only, if we do that, are we, is it completely protected? If I have a doctor who's worried about, you know, he doesn't have enough malpractice insurance and I tell him that a charging order is the exclusive remedy, am I giving him false hope? Mm -hmm. Or do I need to look at other options? Do I need to go offshore? Do I need to, you know, what do I need to do to protect his interest? And again, audience, not against <laughs> creditors that he knows about or should know about, but really this group of people who might target him or her just because of the fact that they have wealth. And really quickly, where the, where the rubber meets the road here is if you're running a business and a third-party creditor is able to come in and break up the business and foreclose on it, no more business. Right. It's done. Like you're you're gonna have to, I mean, the, it it's not gonna be able to function as a regular business. But if they come and all they can get is a charging order, right? Then all they all they have a right to is distributions that are coming out of the company, which is a lot easier to manage. Somebody can still come in and buy the business, and take the assets somewhere else and pay off the creditor, et cetera, et cetera, and leave it. But if it's if there's foreclosure, that destroys the whole business. It does. So it's a it's a business friendly posture to have charging order protection only exactly because it allows businesses to function without having a divorce or some other third-party creditor break up and destroy the entire business which is such an important point because um, some of the things that Kevin you know you've said when people think about what it is we do they assume that we're doing it out of bad faith to protect these wealthy people who are doing really terrible things but first of all we would never take someone like that as a client a but b what we're really trying to do is protect the ability of businesses to continue to function in a healthy way despite right. what is going on with our judicial system that may or may not be allowing uh, excess judgments to occur, right? right. So it's it, we believe it's a it's a really important and healthy way to um, to protect our businesses. And the other thing too is it'll force a settlement. Mm -hmm. You know, honestly, if you think about a fair market value situation, 
if you have somebody with a crazy judgment, let's take, you know, oh, you owe me $2 billion. Oh, yeah, right. You know, um, you know, how are we going to get this to settle? Because, again, that's a huge amount of wasted right. time. It's essentially an opening offer is what it is. Exactly. Right, yeah. And, and again, let, we're not making a comment about whether we think Alex Jones owes that money or any of those kinds of things. We're just commenting so on it because whether or not he can pay. Right. But, it's just know. a question of yeah. exactly, exactly can he pay? The so so I read that article in '98. Oh, I was getting ready to tell you. I gave a speech to a group of lawyers, and there are always speakers' dinners at these things, and usually there's some wine and alcohol um, that's that goes along with that and I was in the lobby of the hotel talking to some other speakers and one really pretty um, academic gentleman who I, I had a lot of respect for I guess had had a little bit too much to drink and he literally accosted me in the lobby and said who are you to say that a charging order is not the exclusive remedy against these you know these partnerships and th my only answer was I guess I'm that you know little girl in Austin Texas who just reads like, I, I think that that, you know, and, and the point is that often what the audience needs to know, a lot of times lawyers are lazy. lazy. Mm -hmm. You know, we're not going to go and look for something if somebody's not paying us to right. do it. And a lot of times we do do that. We just say what everyone says, you know. Um, it's so, easier to just call somebody and be, or talk to somebody and be like, well, this is what we've always said. Right. Charging orders is the exclusive remedy. Ding, ding, ding. And it just doesn't always work that way practically. So then, and, and, and part of my reason in writing that article was I started seeing rumblings in the Uniform Act uh, to codify the fact that it does create a lien mm -hmm. and the lien can be foreclosed on. Mm -hmm. So it was really important, you know, once I started, I realized that that's what it did, then all of a sudden I saw rumblings about that. And then same thing happened with the limited liability company right. um, situation, and I wrote a another article about limited liability companies and charging orders. And um, and it's been really gratifying. You know, you think nothing you do means anything or, you know, you write things and no one cares. Well, for years, I was giving speeches really about this and foreign trusts. And it was so gratifying, the number of people who'd come up to me and say, oh my gosh, we are changing that statute um, in our, you know, in our legislature because we realize how important it is to protect small business. Mm -hmm. And we had no idea that it created a lien and the lien could be foreclosed on. And in fact, the Uniform Act for limited liability companies um, said that not only could the lien be foreclosed on, but if there's a showing of not even bad faith, but, you know, uh, that the charging order hasn't been effective to give the creditor what they need, then the court could actually bust up the company. Right. Could order its liquidation, right? Sell the assets. Sell the assets. And so then that, that was in the Uniform Act, and some states passed it, like Illinois just passed it whole cloth. Mm -hmm. And so then there were a couple of years where I was out really talking about this, and then the Uniform Act changed mm -hmm. to take that particular provision out because it, it became really clear. So I'm not, I'm really not tooting my own horn. I'm just saying that it's been really gratifying, but it's been really gratifying to see how um, discussion of these things can bring about change, yeah. which is part of the reason why we're doing this podcast is to start talking about some of these things in a broader audience 
because some of these things are beneficial, at least from our standpoint, because we small businesses are under so much pressure from a tax standpoint and a regulatory standpoint that anything we can do to give them breathing room is helpful. Is very helpful. Yeah, and so the way this has played out, generally speaking, now is each state has kind of adopted a different posture. For LLCs, for example, each state has a different statute for what the exclusive remedy is. If they if they want to make a charging order the exclusive remedy, often they'll use that language and they'll right. stick it right in the statute and say a charging order is the exclusive remedy. Other states like California or some of the, mostly the bigger, more liberal states have a tendency to not like that. And right. so they usually say it's not the exclusive remedy. There's also liens and foreclosures. Some states have made a distinction between single member LLCs and, and uh, in the context of LLCs, between single member LLCs and LLCs that have more than one member. And they made a distinction where you can get a lien on a single member LLC, but if there's more than one member, then charging remedies the exclusive order. So states have kind of played with how they implement this, but generally speaking, more pro-business states um, have a tendency to adopt the charging order Right. As the exclusive right. remedy language because they understand that there's a direct relationship between small businesses operating and the protections that they have from creditors. And and the thing that is really important for everyone to understand is well, I'm I'm about to make a political statement. There are <laughs> different communities, you know, um originally states the majority of rights were ceded to the state. It was really after the Civil War. Tenth Amendment, yeah. Yeah, where the federal government stepped in and said, because of the risk of you know slavery, we're gonna you know take this away from states. Um, and and again, we could we could have a whole series of podcasts on all the times where we feel afraid of things and then we give up rights, <laughs> you know, and then we can't really get them back. Um, it's it's really uh, incredible the difference between states. You see it in the exemption statutes. What do they exempt, right? So very pro-business states like Texas and Florida, they have very strong exemption statutes, unlimited homestead, you know, things that might look egregious to people, but the reality is that it allows business owners to continue to operate. If you look at states that aren't as pro-business, California and New York are two really good examples. They have very limited exemption statutes. Mm -hmm. It exempts only a small amount of cash value of life insurance. Mm -hmm. Your homestead is very, very limited. It's and 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 the you know the argument for that is more and more some strange kind of socialist economic view. Um, that we should, you know, this we should all be the same, and the, you know, it, it's this kind of communal way of looking at things, um, which in a utopia, and maybe you know, if uh, if it were a true utopia, and you know, humans were perfect, would be beautiful and wonderful, and we would all be behind that. But the the thing about it is that, you know, humans are not, I mean, at least, okay, I believe that humans aren't naturally kind and loving to each other. Naturally utilitarian. Right. Yeah. Um, so, but the, the point of that really is that, that, that states right now have the ability to have their own statutes and to make their own decisions and to encourage business in whatever way that they think makes sense. Yeah. Um, and so when you're looking at these various jurisdictions and trying to figure out where you want to operate and where the entities should sit, 
et cetera, there's a wide choice, a right. very, very, very broad um, set of rules that, and you can choose which state you want to go to. Yeah, and that, that really makes a huge difference. A lot of people, the proof is in the pudding with regards to where, like for example, Delaware is a jurisdiction we love. Right. Delaware has church. Yeah. Uh, basically every major corporation is incorporated in Delaware. That's right. Do they right. have their headquarters there? No. A lot of times they're in California or Texas or some, or some big state or big city, but they're still incorporated in Delaware because the laws make a huge difference. The enforcement of the laws, the predictability of the laws. Delaware has a chancery court system that's unpar- unparalleled. Right. And corporations love that kind of security, not just corporations, but LLCs, pe- business yeah. owners in general. You can make an LLC in Delaware and not live there. All you need mm-hmm. is a registered agent. And so that makes a huge difference. And so a lot of these companies, you know, different jurisdictions become hotspots for people making co- Wyoming is a hotspot right now because it's so cheap to make one. Right. And they have charging order protection. So the way states do things makes a huge difference in the way, both in the cost and in the way that you're protected, your assets are protected within the company. So that's, from our perspective, that's a huge deal. When we're coaching clients on where to start a business, where to move a business or convert it or whatever, we have certain states specifically in mind and certain ones that we definitely avoid just based on what the statutes are. Right, exactly, exactly. So, um, you know, the, the, this charging order protection and, you know, it's just to kind of, you know, bring that to a close. Um, it's we, we aren't trying to protect bad actors from their the consequences of their own actions. We're not talking about secured creditors at all. We're talking about unsecured claims um, and providing a check and balance system to protect their businesses from unnecessary interruption or intervention, they still, as individuals, even if the creditor can't get their interest in that company, they still can get all their other assets. It's not like they're foreclosed from other um, remedies, right? Right. So, um, but the charging order particularly will protect the business itself. And so the other thing kind of in closing, if you, if you want to think about it, um, and one of the things we need to put up are statistics, you know, how many individuals are employed by closely held businesses, because the statistics say the majority of people are employed by these, um, you know, smaller businesses, not all the big corporations. So if you're an employee, right, this is good for you. (laughs) Because, you know, if you have a business owner, who comes under, you know, all of a sudden a plaintiff's group wants to attack that business owner, the last thing that we want culturally or, you know, from a socioeconomic standpoint is all those employees to be impacted by that liability. Or the boss gets a divorce and all of a sudden you're out of a job. Yeah. Because somebody had to sell the assets to satisfy judgment or something like that. I mean, like uh, this is a, let's just pretend for a second that Amazon is a private corporation. Right. Right. Let's pretend. Let's pretend. Well, obviously <laughs> it's not. But, um, and Jeff Bezos gets a divorce from his wife. Yeah. They have to split the company in half. If she had the authority to just go start selling trucks and start selling warehouses and start selling all the IP, everything that Amazon has, think of what a huge economic impact that would have. Right. You know? So it's that happening on a very much smaller scale where it's like 
it, how much how much disturbance are we going to allow the creditor to have with regards to getting collecting what they're right. owed exactly and rightfully owed but nonetheless how that plays out makes a huge difference for the economy in general and so that's why we like the charging order protection right generally speaking yeah. and and in future podcasts we're going to talk about uh, specifically what we if you you know the way we want entrepreneurs to organize those businesses because there are you know other things to think about because um, not only is there the third party creditor issue but you know you can have an operational problem inside one of your operational modalities or or you know you you have different types of businesses right you you have a lighting business and you you know you do electrical you do installation of large poles etc so so you can have different types right. of businesses right. so in a future podcast Kev let's talk about how we actually structure those things and the importance of treating those things as corporations and companies and entities and not as your own pocketbook because the reality is if you're a small business owner it has to be a business right so you can't pretend that um, that your personal money is actually the business because a lot of business owners are just thinking well I'm paying taxes on all of it and it's all coming up to me because these are all disregarded entities or whatever the case may be right. But they're not thinking about it in terms of the risk profile of each little business that they've set up and the fact that, that if you do that all in one pool, it's kind of assessed the risk. But we can talk about that at a later podcast. But um, if you're a business owner and you're thinking, man, am I in the right jurisdiction? Um, do I have charging order protection? Do I need to move? Et cetera, et cetera. This is one of the things that we do for our clients is we assess the risk of their entire structure mm. and we give them a recommendation and show them um, – what they should probably do moving forward to kind of deal with some of these creditor risks and make sure their companies are protected. So if you're interested in doing that, we um, aren't really taking a lot of clients right now because we're extremely yeah. busy. But nonetheless, we would love to talk to you and see if it would be a good fit for you. Um, you can email me. My uh, podcast email is kreddington at Pridary Podcast. Um, Elizabeth, I think yours is E Morgan. I is think it right? is E Morgan. E Morgan at mm -hmm. Podcast. Those are our podcast emails, but you can also go just go to our website, Elizabeth Morgan and Associates. Um, just Google that, and the website will come up. And we'll put a link in the description of this video and on this podcast, and you can just follow that. And then, really quickly, um, in each of our podcasts, we like to talk a little bit about a partnership we have with our friends at Hargrove Firm. If you're looking for an estate plan that is not necessarily motivated by taxes. In other words, if you're not looking to make generational decisions and make and maximize for estate tax planning, that kind of a thing, that's kind of what we do. If you're looking for something that's just uh, not necessarily motivated by taxes, we work with the Hargrove firm. They're absolutely fantastic, have the smoothest process possible. Um, it's not just a um, plug and chug estate planning kind of service it's actually you're working with real lawyers in the jurisdiction in the state that you're at yeah it's a fantastic service so there's going to be a link down below if you're interested in that just follow that link and that'll get you set up for the basic estate planning stuff so charging order protection got that one under the belt um and we'll see you guys next time to talk a little bit about the structuring so thanks for listening thanks so much have a great day right. bye